Happy Monday, Liberty Kitty Cats. And before we get into today's interview, I want to tell you about an interview that I just had on another podcast called Los Libertinos, hosted by my homie, Carlos Abelar. I had an absolute blast on Los Libertinos uh, talking to Carlos. Carlos, of course, he and his wife, Vanessa, are the owners of Paloma Verde CBD, which you have heard advertised on this podcast before. But today I want to make sure that you go and check out Carlos's podcast, Los Libertinos. Carlos is a super down to earth guy, and he really asks questions in a, what I might call like an everyman kind of way, uh, almost like an outsider who's peeking into the liberty movement for the first time. He's really curious and really asked me some unique questions that I had never gotten before. Uh, so I really enjoyed that conversation. I want to highly recommend you go check out Los Libertinos. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, you can also find it on every podcatcher everywhere. Just look up Los Libertinos and check out Carlos Avalar. And don't forget, while you're at it, go get some CBD over at PalomaVerdeCBD.com. Use discount code ROAR for 25% off any purchase over $75. Yes, that's right. 25% off. Use discount code ROAR over at PalomaVerdeCBD.com. Pop some gummies and listen to Los Libertinos. We need to empower people with not just the philosophical tools, but the inspiration to break free from the system. Welcome to the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast, your weekly dose of education, inspiration, and real-world application from the top minds in the liberty movement. If you want liberty, we need to be better leaders, better husbands, better fathers, better friends, better businessmen. We need to be better people. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clay. and liberty. Today, I am here with the uh, host of the Been Awake podcast. He also has a Substack by the same name, and he recently published an article entitled The Post-Libertarian Moment. We're going to be discussing that here today. I'm pleased to welcome L.B. Munoz. L.B., are you ready to roar? The enemies of liberty shall tremble at the bellow of my voice. <laughs> I like it. Now, that was, that's, a, that's a unique take on a roar. I respect it. Um, LB, uh, we're going to talk about this article you, you wrote, um, break, kind of breaking down what you call uh, the post-libertarian moment. A lot of people are, are referring to like, post-libertarians as a group of people or as like a movement, but you specifically define it as a moment. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more uh, about why that is in a bit. But first, I just want to kind of get to know... LB a little bit. So uh, why don't you just break down kind of um, how this all started for you? Were you someone that was kind of always into political stuff uh, or were you did just did you kind of where, where along this train? Because you kind of lay out the whole history here of the last 15 years or so of the liberty movement. Where where was it for you that you kind of hopped on the train and started getting fascinated by this stuff? Uh, 2012 election would have been when I discovered libertarianism. But I do like to tell the story as having an inoculation at the beginning of my life, which was my grandparents being refugees from Cuba. So my entire life, I was kind of primed against Marxist thought, Marxist ideology. And so when I went to university with the uh, aspirations of, of studying philosophy, I, I knew that that wasn't where I was going to go. Um, and so that kind of that kind of led me down a path and understanding like free markets. I was given the road to serfdom at like 18 years old, and that would have been like one of the first uh, pure libertarian texts that I would have read. Pretty based book for an 18 year old, I'd say. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. So I read that at like at like 18 years old, and then after the 2012 election, 
because, you know, I really thought that if just if Mitt Romney got into office, we could roll back the socialism that was Barack Obama. You know, I talk about the, uh, the, the good old days. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, how, how naive or how young. But so after that, I kind of discovered libertarianism, kind of went on a path that led me to Tom Woods. And as people say, the rest is history, right? You know, discovered shows like yours, shows like part of the problem. I've been in the space then for as however many years that would be almost a decade. And, li- you know, listening to a lot of the shows, I had a project a few years ago with some friends where I tried writing and hosting a podcast, wasn't in a good place for it, left it to the side when I kind of got this job that I wanted. And 2020 for a lot of people changed everything. And one thing for me that it changed was realizing that I had a voice to offer to these uh, to these situations. And I kind of started that journey about a year ago of what that voice is, what is it, how how does it come across? Um, and that's led to basically the pages of beenawake.com, where I talk about news, mindset, and philosophy. And that's gone through a few iterations, but it it kind of it kind of stays around that core. So, do you think that when you first started uh, been awake, I, I really like the title, by the way. It, it's uh, it's kind of like a flip on on woke. Um, so maybe, maybe get into how you came up with that one too. But um, was it was it more that was it less? A lot of people say they started podcasts because they suddenly had a lot of time during the pandemic. But I don't think you really. I think you were an essential worker and stayed in work yes. the whole time. So for you, it just seemed like was it more like you felt you had a perspective that you just weren't really hearing out there otherwise. Yeah. And I kind of, and I, I thought I had enough talent and skill to make it work. I've always been interested. I love the medium of podcasting. I've always loved radio. I've always, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I would have wanted to be in radio. Um, I have like a bit of a history as a performer, right? Like being on stage growing up, uh, performing arts and music background. So I kind of had all these, I had all those skills in my talent stack, as it were, to where like faced with the situation that, um, that, that we had, you know, with the world turning totalitarian or tyrannical, whatever word we want to use to describe it, I felt like I had to say something. Um, even if it was, even if it was just to people in my life who I could trust with what I had to say, because like I, you know, I wasn't born LB Muniz. It's still my name, um, but that's not that's not like my that's not my Christian name, as it were. Um, so I, I kind of I created a persona um, to write under just because of the gravity of the situation and the topics. And I wanted that freedom to be able to explore ideas without worrying about somebody that I knew from 20 years ago coming across it and ruining me before I could uh, before I could get anywhere. <laughs> if that, gotcha. I think I guess that probably makes sense to people given given the world we live in now. Um, but yeah, so it's just kind of always there. And yeah, the been awake, the idea of been awake. Um, I didn't want it to be anti woke. Right. And, and in fact, I would even like, I would even include based as much as I like based things a lot of, a lot of the times, like my perspective isn't based and it's not woke. It's been awake. I've been looking at these things from a skeptical frame of mind for a long period of time. You know, certainly most than more than most of the people that who willy nilly post Instagram stories, which always inevitably be the same ones. If you if you if you have a wide enough selection of people in your network, you'll kind of see that. Like, why is this person from Massachusetts posting the same meme as somebody from Miami? Right. Two completely different walks of life. But we're going to compare something like uh, in, in particular, the, um, the the tragedy that was the killing of Tamir Rice with the with the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, recently, which is like a popular meme that's been going around right now. Those couldn't be two more different situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there's a meme circulating right now. I've seen it at least three times on Instagram saying that these are basically the same thing. You know, Rittenhouse goes free, but Rice is in a grave. And again, that was a horrible situation. Like it's and, and so it's um, 
So the reason why the reason the name for the space is an answer to the inevitable question: Why aren't you one of us? Because I have looked. I've been I've been studying these things for longer than the past two years, <laughs> and and so I kind of I kind of like it. It it kind of works. Um, it's also very nondescript. It it gives me. I don't feel like I'm like left into any. Uh, I'm not like pigeonholed into something yeah. by the name of it either. You could take it as sar- as slightly a sarcastic jab against wokeness, or you could take it as as welcoming to the woke. You could really take it anyway. Well, and that's this is an interesting diversion, though, right? Because like it, woke did used to be a horrible thing, yeah. right? Like woke came from the American black community is like it, it kind of close to what like the Hoteps talk about. As far as I understand it, I might be wrong about some things, but I'm not far off. John McWhorter has been talking about this a lot, and he he doesn't like to use the word woke. He uses the word the elect. But again, you know, words have this, I call it linguistic drift, where there's things are always going to get redefined and put into a certain way. And the degree to which what what ends up being popular is not something you have control over as a creative at any point in time, which is... In part, I think one of the reasons why I can bring a unique perspective to this post-libertarian moment, because I kind of see that natural flexibility in language, because I think in that I study identity, that like this thing we call identity is actually something of a paradox. And briefly, that means that I can say that a word is an identity and have only positive connotations. Somebody else can have the same association with that word as an identity, but have completely negative connotations. Somebody can have completely different positive connotations to that word. And isn't this all circling around this word we call libertarian, this identity that we have? It's the exact same dilemma that uh, I and many others have had with the word libertarian, because maybe when we're talking amongst our in-group, it's fine because we're all kind of telling each other what we sort of believe, even if we might quibble on a lot of different things, but we have sort of a you know a base idea of what that means in the in-group. But when the out-group sees it, like they, who knows what they think? Like sometimes it's maybe sort of accurate, probably not. Usually it's just, uh, you know, just a series of, of straw men that, that have been conjured in their minds. So, uh, and that's why it's like, it, it's been such a hard thing for me, like I, to, to think about the term libertarian. It's like, like I haven't, I can't say I've rejected any value that I held all these years that I've been using that term or that others that have used that term to describe me or, or what have you but it's also like I don't I don't want the anchor anymore I just don't want the anchor of a label so I don't mind telling someone I'm libertarian when they when they're in the in group and they know what the, what I'm telling them but for someone who doesn't know what that means I think it, it just hinders the conversation because it's just saddling things down with baggage that doesn't even need to be there in the first place yeah precisely and then and, and then I mean I, I can remember one time doing you know when you when when it was suddenly you were talking on the phone again for dates. Um, and I can remember telling somebody and she was, she was left wing. Right. Um, and, and it was, I, I was like, Oh, okay, let me try. Let me just try this on. Cause I never really accepted the label anarchist myself. I come from a skeptical, but ba- like I found this like philosophical skepticism before I found libertarianism. Mm-hmm. So for me, like a lot of the internal debates, minarchy, anarchy were not, um, not that they weren't interesting, but they were academic to me. Right. I didn't really see the need for the practice for, for, for making a decision because we were so far away from that point. I like to say I'm not destinational, I'm directional. So it's about how do you orient yourself to actually continue down the river of life in the best in the best way possible. It's not this static, it's not this static thing. Like reality isn't static. The world is the objective world might be, but like reality itself, which is mediated through the individual, isn't a static entity. Um 
So this is to say, I decided to call myself a libertarian anarchist, uh, and it just to just to try it on, see how it went. Let's it see went how this poorly. fits, right? <laughs> yeah, it went poorly. She didn't, you know. She there was the point of like, but wait, you don't think that property destruction is good? I thought you said you were an anarchist. Mm, yeah, and you can do two things when you're presented with that information. You can rail against the fact that nobody understands you and that you're just this, you're just this unique voice in the world who is so profound that the commoners couldn't possibly deign to be able to reach your level of consciousness. Or you can try to figure out how to uh, communicate your message more effectively. Or you could grab her phone and, and destroy it and be like, actually, I, I don't mind a little property destruction. Yeah. <laughs> Depending she on where you want things to go. Yeah, well, obviously the the phone date never turned into a real in, into real drinks, so <laughs> which is good. Probably saved me a hundred bucks. Yeah, I, I I probably could have used that tactic uh, more often uh, when in my in my early days uh, of Tinder before I uh, you know get got off the market here. But yeah, I, I never did the. I always went for, straight from text to the date, and even when they went fine, but weren't going to go anywhere else, I was like, I guess I didn't need to really spend that money to find this out. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I could have just bought myself drinks and had the phone call, maybe. So uh, yeah, yeah, not bad advice for those still still in the game here. Yeah, and people will say, oh, you could go Dutch, and it's like, yeah, I'm not Dutch, no. so. <laughs> All right, kitty cats, time to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors at iTrust Capital. You've heard me talking about these guys for quite some time now. They've been a tremendous sponsor, and I really want to encourage you guys, if you are investing in cryptocurrencies or if you are looking to invest in cryptocurrencies, to check out iTrust Capital. These guys help you do this not only very easily, very cheaply with the lowest fees in the industry, uh, but you can actually do that through their traditional IRA setup to protect those gains for your future. And now there is literally Literally, starting today, there is no better time to sign up for an account with iTrust Capital. Why? Let me tell you why. Starting today, they are removing their monthly fee. So you can sign up and you do not have to pay any monthly fee for doing so. Also, they are now giving $100 worth of Bitcoin to everyone that signs up through our link and funds their account. You can find that link at itrust.capital slash lions. That's right. $100 of free Bitcoin for signing up and funding your account. And now there are no fees. So this is literally the best time to sign up for iTrust Capital. Go check it out at itrust.capital slash lions. So LB, why don't we just jump into this article? And, and I kind of want to, I really like this article for a couple of reasons. It kind of, I think most of your approach, you do stick in some opinion like towards the end, but mostly it seems like you're doing it more as like uh, from the perspective of a historian or almost like a, like I've described myself lately um, as the watcher. In fact, I don't know. I've been on so many podcasts lately as a guest. I, and I know I've described that there. I don't think I've ever described it here. So, so, so people know what I'm talking about. I'll just briefly describe and then I'll, I'll, I'll toss it to you. But you know, I've, I've described myself lately as like the watcher of the libertarian movement because I've always seen myself as sort of an impartial observer. I bring on guests. I let them have their peace. I, I host debates. I let, I let everybody get at each other. And I, it's not often that I, at least before the last year or year and a half or so that I insert my own opinions. And in Marvel comics, uh, secondprintcomics.com and uh, Marvel comics, there's a character called the watcher who doesn't really, he, he is basically his race is sworn to not intervene. They're just there to record history and just, watch basically except sometimes when things get really bad uh the watcher does in fact intervene because he just you know he just feels feels he it's so serious that he has to break his oath to intervene and that's that's kind of how i felt the last year or so when i've stepped out of my you know typical sort of impartial moderator role and have been sort of inserting my opinions more but to circle back to you i i think most of your approach at least with this article um most of it anyway is really just more 
of trying to really explain because this term has been tossed out here a lot. We hear a lot of people using the term post-libertarian, post-libertarians, or what have you. And I even see a lot of people saying, so what exactly is a post-libertarian? And you know, there, there's a, little, a lot of confusion about just what that means or just who that is. And I think you did a really good job of bringing it down. So that's why I wanted to, uh, to bring you on here today to, to do that. So, um, and I think a good place to start might be by you describing what you're comparing the post-libertarian moment to, and that is to the libertarian moment. I believe it was Matt Welsh that used Matt Welsh that used that term uh, about in like 2008 or so around the time of the first Ron Paul campaign. But I'll let you take it from there. Describe the libertarian moment and how that compares to the post-libertarian moment as opposed to a movement. Yeah, I thought the libertarian moment was a good be, so that article was written by yeah Matt Welsh and Nick Gillespie as well. Um, and it was, you know, it was in Reason Magazine and I have the piece pulled up next to me here since we're going to be referring it to a lot. It's So it's 2008. We're about to elect Barack Obama as president, you know, uh, rather inaugurate Barack Obama as the 44th president. And, you know, Matt Gillespie or Matt Gillespie, Matt Welsh and Nick Gillespie <laughs> that talk about the libertarian emerged, moment. Yeah. Uh, and so when I have the quote where, you know, basically it starts out that this is a world now where it's more possible than ever to live your life on your own terms. Uh, due to exponential advances in technology, broad-based in- increases in wealth, the ongoing networking, da 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 It's this, it's this hopeful message that we kind of experienced at this point in history, which was a little bit before I entered the libertarian sphere. Um, but certainly I was aware of Ron Paul, and a lot of it was in conjunction with the Ron Paul uh, presidential campaigns. I was not somebody who was brought to libertarianism by Ron Paul, certainly in the direct aftermath of Ron Paul. Like I said, the 2012 election was kind of what did it for me. But so I think that kind of, in in effect, kind of does give me a different perspective than a lot of other people because it was around the same time. So I was kind of part of the, I was feeling the energy, but I didn't know where it was coming from. And this is kind of where I start the clock on the libertarian moment to here. And this was this point in history where we thought that markets were going to be the best way to organize society. Democracy is probably okay. Colonialism and communism are over. We don't have to worry about those things anymore. And the internet is here. And this is going to be the, the, the springboard to a new, level of, a new level of human freedom, right? This new age of human liberty. Even if the, govern, the representative government isn't, doesn't have an L next to their name as the case may be. This technological advancement is going to make our lives so much better. I think we're kind of seeing that that might have been a little bit too hopeful of a message. I mean, just, just reading this myself right now, um, I, I'm, it's funny because I can picture my 2008 self nodding in agreement and thinking this is awesome. But I, I think that just goes to show like how much of a maybe a material view I had of this whole thing, like, like 12 or 13 years ago where, where I used to like really buy into this argument. Oh yeah. More Liberty is just when technology makes things better, makes things more affordable for us. And when gay people can get married and I, I probably would have like really agreed with this. I, I'm sure I actually remember reading this article at the time and, and I remember agreeing with it. So, uh, but, and now I read it though. And now I, I cringe reading this now, right now. And, and I'm not even, that's not even a knock on Matt Welsh because I, cause that's, that's much a knock on me for liking it at the time. But to, to, me like and maybe it's because i've been so hardened by the last 18 20 months up to see what what it really means because you can you, you can actually say we have all of this right now still we have everything mm-hmm. in this paragraph still gay people can still get married you know technology is still making things cheaper except you know except for the recent inflation and all that stuff you can say we kind of have the same scenario but to have the same outlook would be completely insane well and let's flip this a little bit too right because 
and, and try to like spin it around and look for a different frame because what, what was the reality of the matter? These messages, right? How did I discover the Austrian school of economics? I was given the book Road to Serfdom, but I didn't understand that this was Austrian economics and that there was more than just F.A. Hayek. And in fact, right, this is Hayek writing more as a political philosopher, which was more in line with my interests and not like pure economics in that in that book. It's informed by economics, but it's not pure economics. So what the Internet did was saying, if you were to Google, like, why did the market crash? Because people were looking for the answers, you could find a book like uh, it was Meltdown, right? But that Tom Woods put out and became a New York Times bestseller. Yep. Like you could find those books. You could find the Mises Institute. You used to be able to search anything and put Mises after it. And Mises, and, and you find the article with the first result. That started to change after 2016. Um, that 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 did like you you and we know through like the work of like Dr. Epstein, I think Richard Epstein, correct me if I'm wrong, who wrote who did the creepy line a few years ago where he talks about search engine manipulation effect. Um, there's of course I'm, I'm trying to think. I think it's isn't it like the fairness algorithm or something like that that's in the that's in the Google AI, which is why like if you Google white family, you get like a picture of a black family, even though there's no you know like it, there's nothing like prejudicial <laughs> I've never, behind. I've never it. tried that. That's kind of hilarious. It, or like, and or that might not be the right one. Douglas, who's the the Murray that's British, not the Murray that did the bell curve. Um, I always get Charles and Douglas Murray confused. Charles uh, is the bell like, curve one. That, that's, okay, that's so Douglas Murray writes goes through some of these in his book, The Madness of Crowds, which is which which I thought was an interesting read. Um, another, I think one in particular too was like scientist, and like you won't you, you know like be over. It's oversampling for women because again we're trying to under this broader narrative we're trying to correct these perceived biases i just did it because i had to know if you when i searched white family on on um, google the first image is a black family with like one also yeah this is a black family the next image is a white family and there are two more white family images and there's another black family and then it's kind of a mix from there (laughs) yeah and you know and it could very well be that those are i I do know black americans who's who have the last name white so like it, it is possible okay, that it could possible. be that that it could be that it's just it's interesting when you kind of like and when would you ever search for that you know what i mean <laughs> so like it's just weird that that's like that's the way that the algorithm manifests itself um so but this was the moment right this we thought that we were on the cusp of things and in fact things were things were kind of going in that direction but there were always voices that warned about the excesses of the internet right and like the and that this technology might be too much for us to handle I, I consider myself a technologist. I'm not somebody who shies away from using technology. I think going back to that point of direction, not destination, I, I think it's all about how you use it. One of I've, I've written about the meme that changed my life, which is what's the, what's the most complicated thing to explain to somebody 100 years ago? The answer being that I have a device in my pocket that can access the wealth of the world's knowledge and I use it to watch cat videos. <laughs> like, so, and so when I read that, I'm like, okay, well, if that's what people are going to do, I'm going to use that to try and increase my knowledge and try to you know, bring, a, bring, bring myself to a better understanding. And as a skeptic, I like to say that I've, I set aside the idea of finding truth a long time ago. I've, I endeavor instead to find what is. And I think what is exists somewhere between expression and understanding. So I have like this dualism that I use as, as, like, a, as like a focal point. Where like, okay, forget truth with a capital T. I, I truly believe truth with a capital T is unknowable. 
you could perhaps you know save a caveat for divine revelation but even the divine revelation is told through the through through us mere mortals so like you have to kind of uh, that that's this is how i conceptualize yeah, not not that there isn't truth perhaps but that Correct. we could we could never fully grasp the truth and know it for sure in our you know in these meat suits yeah. i guess you might say and that doesn't mean that you can't have strongly held beliefs that doesn't mean you can't like you know colloquially use the word truth um, but at least for me, that has kind of that has opened the door to this, you know, exploration of ideas. And I do, and 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 so that's again kind of like this understanding. I wanted to understand when I uh, when I heard, you know, I think it was Pete who first said it on a show, or maybe it was Matt. And I, you know, apparently there was like a divide where people weren't listening, either were listening to Dave or listening to Jason. Uh, Dave Smith and Jason Stapleton. Just I've been listening to both all these years. Yeah, same exactly. Like I had two, so it was like I I didn't realize that this kind of divide existed. And as I started to uh, write myself and be like, okay, well, what is it that that like Jason's talking about when he's talking about these people who are you know not the nicest people on the internet? We might say, or like some of the crazy sounding stuff that Matt Erickson was talking about on on King Pilled and elsewhere. Um, you know, that, that just sounded that I didn't have a frame to reference. I could easily have rejected it and been the anti post libertarian. There's actually not, it's, it's actually not that difficult, right? Cause all I have to do is defend the libertarian worldview and defend this, uh, you know, and, 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 and to just, and to just poke holes and be like, it's, it's very easy to do that from the sideline. Right. Instead, I sought to try and understand something. And I tried to listen to the people really hear what they said and process it, amalgamate it, and put it into my own thing. And that's where the biggest thing is that I don't think anybody can be a post-libertarian. I think this is just a moment in history, the way 2008, like you said, was the was perhaps the libertarian moment, right? We thought Rand Paul was going to, we thought Rand Paul was going to bring this message of liberty to the masses of the American people. And instead... <clears throat> Donald Trump got on the stage and told Rand Paul, why are you here? You're doing so poor in the polls. And Your hair looks ridiculous. His, yeah, and criticized <laughs> his hair, which I like Rand's hair for the record. Um, but, you know, I'm a curly-headed guy myself, so maybe that's why. Um, so, like, so, so we had that. And again, at, at this time, I was in more of like the college, uh, like a college mindset. I was involved in some of the student groups. And so the question came up, how do you analyze Donald Trump? Where do you start? And, and I think that's why I said, like, where do you start the clock? That's a big question for me. Um, because where you start the clock can completely change your perspective. As, as somebody like Tom Woods talks about a lot, it's the snapshot versus the video. And I, instead of trying to treat, treat somebody like Donald Trump as an existential threat or the savior to humanity, I said, you know what he is? He's kind of an anomalous figure in American politics. So what if I put him in that frame and I see how he interacts with the world? And... I'm not saying that I'm entirely right. I certainly think you can consider Donald Trump anomalous given uh, certainly for 21st century and, you know, post-war, post-World War II American politics. I think the case is there. But removing that emotional baggage from either side, I think, is, is, is a worthwhile endeavor for those who want to take it. And that's, and that's kind of always been my style and always what I try to do. And you point out very well that the beginning of this piece is it is a quick history. I tried to define things very specifically and I felt like something was missing. So I figured inevitably people would kind of ask like, what do you think? What do you really think it's about? Or what do you think people should do? Because inevitably, if you write something and you put yourself out there as an authority, you, people are going to ask you those things. So I tried to answer those as well, but it is separate. I think you can, I think certainly you could quibble with some of my historical points, but 
it is um it is abridged as i qualify it's i wasn't about to write the book just yet um it's kind of like you know you kind of have to try and give snapshots especially in the how quickly you know how quick the information cycle moves today we may never know what sort of um libertarian moment there would have been more of or where that all would have gone without trump um but we will never know what a world without trump was like because the world has never been the same and i mean i think he was a catalyst for, for many things but also just sort of a symptom of where things were going at the same time and i, I don't know if it's maybe it's kind of a chicken and egg thing like like this was the perfect society and the perfect time in society for someone like trump to exist and also he was a catalyst for kind of where things have gone politically in many ways too so um something to wrap your head around, but we'll, we'll go past Trump here and get into 2020 and you describe, well, you actually do describe it a little bit from your point of view as well. So maybe you can just describe a little bit of, of what you were going through from your own personal life, your own perspective, when this talk of lockdown started coming in and uh, maybe you can kind of filter the story a little bit more uh, as you kind of have been anyway, through your, through how you were experiencing the lockdown and how that started to get you to think differently eventually about the maybe not necessarily liberal libertarian ethics at their base, but more about how people have been going about sort of spreading the message of, of the ideology in the hopes that, of course, if we just do this enough, we will eventually get Angapistan. Yeah, right. <clears throat> so, I mean, yeah, so you kind of alluded to it before. So I did discover during this time that I am an essential worker. Um, so broadly speaking, I support the manufacturing sector at the moment in my, in my main hustle, because I don't like calling it a day job. Um, but so broadly speaking, so we never shut down. There was a few weeks where I had to like work from home on a regular basis. I was, I'm somebody who travels a lot. So I was, I had the capability to work remote, but not necessarily to work from home. And I was in the middle of a move too, which just made it more complicated. But, you know, I can remember sitting in my cubicle as like back from a week of back from a week on the road and everything was getting weird, right? I was staying in different hotels. Now suddenly nobody was serving breakfast. Right. You know, and like and like some places were shutting down, but other places weren't. The Mexican restaurant that I like to go to in a particular town wasn't open for dinner, but I could go to McDonald's. These I'm, I'm, I'm painting a picture a little bit here because these things weren't exactly in this order. But all of those things happened in, in the lead up and the direct aftermath of lockdowns. And that was honestly one of the first things where I'm like being out as much as I was. Like something's wrong here. I literally remember like thinking the same thing to myself about mm -hmm. like literally, literally about a Mexican restaurant because there's a Mexican restaurant close to my house that I, I love and I go there and have, you know, relatively healthy food, sometimes some tequilas too. Uh, but, you know, I would get like, you know, um, you know, just like a rice beans, meat kind of kind of dishes, stuff like that. And and I, I remember like I couldn't go. So I and, I and I was upset by that. And then but as I was driving home thinking about how I wish I could just go to my favorite Mexican restaurant, I drive by the McDonald's and the Burger King and their lines are longer than ever. So I'm like something mm -hmm. if this is supposed to be a whole thing about health and yet I can't go to the place that I actually get some decently healthy food, um, but I could go pull up to this like shit food factory and just get whatever garbage I want dumped directly into my throat. I mean, it just like, it struck me as like, okay, this is not about health. <laughs> yep. And we're kind of uh, given our perspective on the world, you know, uh, libertarians, broadly speaking, we're kind of primed to see that, right? If you study like influence and persuasion, you understand that you can kind of prime an audience for something like that. And if you do sales and marketing, you do this every single day, right? So like I might wear, like I, I might wear clothes, I, I wear different clothes to work than I would going to a wedding because I want to 
give the perception that I know what I'm talking about in that environment, right? It's the reason why a lawyer wears a suit, but like a suit doesn't work for me in my environment because I have to get my hands dirty sometimes. Um, so yeah, so I mean like it, this is when we heard 15 days to slow the spread. And I can remember being like, man, you know, okay, let's see. I don't like this. This is this feels wrong. But gosh, if this is as serious as people say, then then okay. You know, and I say, you know, in the back of your mind, you have different thoughts, but that was what I thought. And I figured, okay, in a couple of weeks, it's going to be fine. Then they started extending them. And I believe it was around the time that March was ending that I first started voicing my concerns to family members and to some friends, but mostly family members. I have a large family that I'm quite close with. And I can remember how quickly people jumped down my throat. Now, I've alluded to skepticism a few times. I don't mind admitting the fact that I have something of a contrarian personality, right? Like, I don't think I try not to let that come through my work. I, like, I think of that as something I try to channel to, to uh, like I said, drive at an understanding of a, of a situation. But so like, I'm somebody who will just take the opposite side sometimes when you're talking just for the sake of it. Um, and, but when, within my family, they would know that these are people who are very close to me. And instead, what I was kind of messed, uh, I was met with was um, like, well, this is, you're ridiculous. How could you possibly think that? How could you possibly go out right now and make deliveries? Don't you know that you could get sick, right? Don't you know that this is a problem? Don't you, what I'm trying to think of another one that, that, was, that was very common. And it sounds like it co- it's coming from a moralist point of view, not necessarily, I mean, they're talking about you getting sick, but it's more like, what, what, what's your problem? What's wrong with you as a person if you're mm-hmm. not following this stuff? Or I can remember saying like, you know, hey, we're having, you know, like, I, I don't know. I, I'm just going to go to, uh, I'm going to go to my mom's house this weekend and see her because this is when I normally go visit her. And like, what do you, what, what, what? You're, you could possibly put her at risk. It's like, eh, yeah, but I'm going to go see my mom. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be with my family. I'm going to be with the people who care about me. Whatever else was going on, there's, I, I always look at those bonds as being more important. And I think that was certainly a divide that you saw with this. Um, one thing that I talk about a little bit later, but it plays in here is the degree to which, and I alluded to this with like the Instagram stories, the degree of social control that is possible through social media is far more than Nick Gillespie and Matt Welsh could have predicted in 2008. And that is not a slight against them. I was a little worried about releasing this because I'm saying things that people who I admire and respect are going to disagree with. Um, and it, you know, and that's kind of like that's that's kind of a jarring thing, but I'm right about this. <laughs> so it so I have to uh, you know so I you can't I I, I I thought about like maybe not releasing this under my name, and it's like well gosh, am I going to create a whole other persona? Yeah, I mean we had that talk when talking about the show. We're like, just is this? Do, are you ready to put this out as your name or you know this version of yeah. your name even? But uh, yeah, here we yeah. are. So <laughs> we know the answer. It's, so yeah, so and I just decided I'm like it's better to give somebody a face for this and you know and to and to actually be interactive and to and to expound the ideas because one thing about the way that I write um this is this I put a little more effort and time into especially with the history to make sure that I had it as right as I could and I've edited this a few times but one thing about the way that I write is I like to say there's always more to say. There's always more to say on these sort in these sorts of questions and given my time constraints I'm not going to be upset if I can't produce a 5000 perfect 5000 word perfectly sourced essay every single week. If I can kind of put some thoughts out there that are interesting well if you actually take them in totality turns out that you actually have something of a body of work. 
right? Which is like a mindset thing that helped me, you know, write and produce as much as I as much as I have. Even being somebody that was working, I was not. There was slow times, but I was not sitting up on the couch, you know, licking my fingers and you know, picking up my toenails or whatever whatever the case may be. That's not what I was doing. I was trying to drum up business in a world that had shut down, and it was a scary thing. And I learned a lot as um as like a professional in those times because it was the first time I ever went through like a, a, a recession of any kind or any kind of like downslope in um, in the economy. And I think a lot of people were isolated from that because a lot of people aren't connected to real things, right? Your business might be... Because this was the thing, this was also talked about early on. It's like, oh, well, everybody can just work from home now. It's like, no, you can't. Like not in my world. And like not that everybody has to work in the world that I'm in, but you have to recognize the fact that a lot of jobs are actually dependent on your location. Yeah. Like for me, I, I had to be physically, um, at least at my, uh, I don't know if I would call it a former career, the career I used to be a lot more active in, um, I had to be you know, physically there to do that. And so I, I mean, I didn't work for three months when this hit, four months actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And like, you know, I was, thankfully I was still paid, you know, the company thankfully still made money because enough manufacturing was still going on, but it was, it was tough and it was scary. And there was a lot of yelling and meetings and like questioning your existence and whether you're good at your job and, and, and. And then I also had friends who were sitting at home and like they were questioning their existence because what am I doing? Like I'm just sitting at home every single day and I'm either on, you know, I'm either now taking the government's money or my company is paying for me, but like they're not expecting me to do anything. And it, it drove people. Insane is, insane is too strong a word, but I like the metaphor of, you know, when glass breaks, some of it crumbles into sand and some of it turns into a jagged edge. 2020 was breaking the window pane of the American society, of, of American society. And we're still dealing with the aftermath of that. And some of us turned into sharp edges that can be used to fight against tyranny. Some of those sharp edges are used to, are being used to fight for tyranny. And then, you know, most people per usual are just the grains of sand underneath it all. I want to look at um, another aspect you touch on, uh, which is really a pretty, a pretty crucial aspect to really understand uh, what you might call the divide among in the liberty community, I guess right now is um, the LPMC. And I know you were, are, I don't know, uh, pretty active or, or, you know, initially active in the LPMC. I used to be far more active. Yeah. Okay. So, and you know, heck this, this very podcast was, you know, I think one of the first public forums where a whole bunch of like big time, not that I'm big time, but you know, a, a, whole, a bunch of like the bigger names in Liberty podcasting, we all got on this show and, and talked about how we were excited about the idea of, you know, a, a more libertarian message being put out in the libertarian party. Um, and, you know, it was Dave Smith, uh, Pete, Jason State, Stapleton, uh, Tom Woods, uh, you know, we all, we all got together and we're pretty much uniformly in support of it. Uh, since that time, there's been some drifted away from it. Jason took like a pretty quick left turn or right turn or something away from it. Um, where I think along the way, I mean, clearly we all know now, like Dave is the most hardcore about it. Um, so where, where were you along the way there? Were you initially excited about the LPMC and where did that start to, when did that start to change for you? Yeah, as an outsider, as an observer, I was excited by it, um, but didn't do anything with it. You know, I, I, I do quote from what I found to be, uh, you know, Michael Heiss's first appearance on the Tom Woods show. Um, so hopefully, hopefully I did that correctly. Um, and so I was, I was excited by it. It sounded interesting, but like I didn't really think politics were, were going to be my thing. Um, had an interest in it, but eh, is that really how I want to spend my time? Uh, you know, political analysis is one thing. Running for office is a completely different thing. Helping somebody run for office is just a matter of making phone calls. I get paid to do that. You know, it's not something I like doing for free. Um, 
so, you know, we kind of had this up and I decided kind of in, you know, in conjunction with 2020, like, yeah, okay, we have this thing. We may as well try to build the LP up and we may as well try to put a message out there. That being said, and you can go back and I've actually, I talked about all of this on my podcast in real time and, you know, in the aftermath of the 2020 election where I kind of, I said, I said the words like, well, why not? Because a friend of mine came on the show and asked me, why, why not do this with the GOP? You probably have more success there. And at the time I said the words like, well, but this one bears my name. I'm a libertarian. So the libertarian party is where I should go. It was an identity thing even for you at the time, which is you know, interesting considering what you say now. Absolutely. Right. Exactly. And, you know, and I was missing empirical data. Right. So just on the outset, it was now I told some close friends and confidants when I joined, I'm like, I said two things. One, the question is whether the LPMC can take over the Libertarian Party. And the second question is whether the Libertarian Party is worth taking over. Now, before I get to that, let me just say what I say in the piece, which is I, the reason why in part, this post-libertarian moment has occurred is because of the LPMC, is because of their success and the fact that a lot of people are on board with that message. And there's maybe a few of us now who are saying, this might not be the best use of those people's time. Now, let's go back. So I just, I, I think, I feel like that's been lost in a lot of the criticisms offered by various people who might be described as a post-libertarian. And you know, I'm somebody I'd, I'd rather fight. I'd rather bury myself, dig myself a hole and figure out a way out of it rhetorically than to like always maintain the high ground. So in this, I will say, because I think there's a lot because all the guys I met were really, really nice. And I still would consider them, you know, um, acquaintances and friends and people that if they said, hey, could you help me out with this? I would say yes. Um, so that that's just an important thing I want to say before I get back to the two questions. And I, and I think that's important that you, that you do say that, too, because it's and I, I'm guilty of it too. I think some of us, especially when we first get certain excited about certain ideas, whether it's being excited about Ron Paul, excited about Trump or excited about uh, post libertarian moments. Uh, I think we can be maybe go so hard on it that it can sound like we're going after people, you know, in, in sort of a negative way. Whereas, you know, even me just like agreeing with some of the points that some of the people in the post libertarian stuff, uh, like moment, I guess you might say, uh, bring up, um, I, I get like, you know, sometimes a lot of pushback, but you know, it, it does make me, yeah, I guess, I guess the point that I try to get across is like, like I, I look at us all as like, we're all riding in like this van together or, or something. And like, maybe the, I see the driver taking a wrong turn and that wrong turn actually at the end of that road is a cliff. And if I'm telling you about that cliff and telling you about the wrong turn, I'm not mad at you and I'm not upset at you and I'm not trying to be a dick to you. I just don't want us to go off the cliff. <laughs> so that's kind of how I see this. Exactly. So let's go back to the questions. Can the LPMC take over the Libertarian Party? Yeah, they can. They've got the energy. They've got the numbers. They've got the organization. Uh, Heist has really built something. Is it worth taking over? Only for that? Uh, no, I, I, is my answer. But I'll qualify that by saying only for the sake of having a Libertarian Party with a principled message. And I don't think that is up to the times that we live in. Mm -hmm. because, because it is a question of the times that we live in. And this is something that I hit on a lot. And um, I recently got accused of being an anti-dogma, of having anti-dogma dogma, which misunderstands my position, but that's fair. Because um, because people conflate the ability to argue effectively with having a dogma, and they're not the same thing, which is one of the reasons why, you know, if you're 
good with your words and like using logic, you can really confuse people. And, and of course, Socrates did this, right? They said they, you know, they said he was like a spearfish who would like confuse people into a, such a state that then they were in a position to listen. Cause it's like, hang on, wait, what were you saying? Mm-hmm. I, I endeavor to do the same thing. It's not, it's not that, um, it's not particularly clever, even if it is profound, <laughs> but <laughs> to the point is it, it's only for that. It, it's only for that nostalgia. It's just, there is a time for all things. And 2020 was one of those years where you had, you had to shift just like in 2016. And you know, you, before that, maybe it was nine 11, right? There are moments that define history um, for the doctor who fans in the aud- audience, you know, cause the doctor travels through time. He'll talk about how, you know, like you can kind of mess with things, but like certain events have to, uh, certain events have to happen the way that they're supposed to happen. You can't just go and uh, you, you can't just go and change them. And, and it's like make final them destination, better. you know, like you're, yeah, they're, they're going to die eventually, pen- right? You might change. Maybe it's not on the plane. That's going to be on the roller coaster. Then. <laughs> yeah. The Pendragon series I read as a kid, they talked about it because they, exp- if you explore, if you read, if you're an, I'm into sci-fi. So anytime you sci-fi inevitably like go, enters into time travel and you know, it, you, you inevitably, when you move yourself along that path, you kind of get to the point of realizing like, Oh, maybe I, if I, you know, it's the butterfly effect. If I've changed one thing, what's the causal chain? We as mere mortals who only have, you know, the smallest of perspective, given the fact that we're living in real time, we can't really put that into a a full perspective. We can, but we can do more of it than we ever could because of technology. And that's a problem. It's a problem because people don't know how to interpret it. Um, But, but 2020 was one of those times where you had to do, where you had to go. And it has, like I said, my words have nothing to do with the LPMC. My criticism has nothing to do with the LPMC per se. You know, I would I would maybe take the tact of saying like, eh, just start running people for office, right? And and just start doing that, and don't worry about the party structure of the LP, because you're investing all of this time to take over the infrastructure of a party that doesn't even have the right to vote, the, the ballot access in all fifty states. Yeah, like it doesn't have supportive in- infrastructure in and of itself. Any infrastructure that comes is probably coming from the actual LPMC people that are coming in and you know out there supporting their specific people, which just makes you wonder, you know, like is could this just be an organizing group on the local level to meet with like like minded people, support whatever initiatives or people you want to support? Do, does it need to be uh, as part of the Libertarian Party? Like you know. And I, I'm not saying it does or doesn't be, but I mean, maybe that is, maybe that's actually a different answer depending on the locality. Sure, and and that's and that's entirely fair, by the way. But the, uh, but again, the point is, why do you need to take over a national party? And 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 then, so that's one data point, right? You might say like, oh, this is just taking a lot of work, and then like, so you're you're taking over a party, you're focusing on taking over a bureaucracy, and then you're going to actually implement change. And I know that you can run people simultaneously, but then there's the second data point, which is that the party is actively rejecting you. I mean, I, I haven't followed this too closely, but I believe the Libertarian Party of Delaware has now like split and there's like some sort of, I, I don't know if there's legal warfare afoot or what. I don't want to, I don't want to speak out of turn given, you know, this is a larger show. There's definitely threats of legal warfare. <laughs> I don't know. There's, there's actual there's threats of legal warfare. Right? There was the whole New Hampshire debacle, right? There, that Which was a true scandal. And we keep doing this. And, you know, a part of me sits there and says, man, why does this keep happening? And why is this why is this the best use of people's time? Because a lot of people are dedicating their time to it. And a lot of those people are going to hate me right now because I'm saying this. 
and their cognitive dissonance is going to be triggered. So they're going to react emotionally to it. I think it's hard for people like us because like when you're watching from the outside, uh, even if we might not agree with the strategy or something like it's still pretty clear, like the LPMC are like more of the good guys in this stuff. Like they're the ones getting screwed over. They're the ones that the bureaucracy is trying to stop. And I always want to root for the good guys. Like it's more like I, I would love to see them defeat the people that are trying to defeat them. But that's not, not me thinking it'll be fun to watch is not a reason to do something, you know, or anybody feeling just that rush of of defeating them to take over. It, the heck, there has to be an answer to why, like, w- what's the reason for taking it over? Correct. And if you were talking about taking over a political party that had ballot act, that didn't have to spend tens of thousands of dollars on ballot access or maybe even hundreds of thousands, I don't know what the number is, but I know it's not cheap to get ballot access in many states. Um, you know, you might have a better case if you had a, if you were trying to take over a political party that had national representation or even like state level representations of some kind of considerable voting block, you might have a case. If we didn't have the, if we didn't have a winner take all system in the United States that inhibits the rise of third parties and outside parties, like we see under the Westminster model, you might have a case, but there's a lot of people who are looking at the, who are active maybe or to, to varying degrees within the LP and the LPMC who, for example, don't, don't really see anything or rather maybe want to run a, somebody against Ron DeSantis in Florida. And, and yeah, I'm going to name him because he's the focal point. He is the example. He is the only, he might he is the best example in effect, not in theory, in effect of an American of high profile American politician with serious power exerting it. Mm-hmm. You could also point to somebody like Thomas Massey and Rand Paul, but certainly you've seen the degree to which in a coalition environment like the Senate, like, like the legislature is, how, that's, how it's effective rhetorically, but not in effect. Right? I think I just saw something today that Disney isn't implementing the... Man, you know, Disney isn't going to implement a mandate yeah. as, as, as a consequence of, of the Florida law. Right. That's good. Right. And that, that's certainly more of a real world effect, even though like a Rand Paul or a Thomas Massey might have a more prestigious role or like more of a bully pulpit or sort of like it just being on the national level. Their actual effect is honestly very little compared to the the real world effect of what Ron DeSantis has done in the last two years. Rand Paul will be will go down in history. Same with Thomas Massey in the same way that Patrick Henry did. A lot of people love Patrick Henry. But they remember his words, right? And his words were nice, but Alexander Hamilton took control. That, you know, historically speaking, to make the story very simple, that's the way it went. Patrick Henry had nice words. Give me liberty or give me death. And Alexander Hamilton said, yeah, okay, I'll give you liberty and I won't kill you just yet. How about that? And it was fine and it worked, you know, and then, and then like that got the ball rolling to where we are today. So I, I don't want to belittle like the work that somebody like Rand Paul does because it is like... For posterity, I, I don't, I, when I cover news, it's a little different, but I try not to write for today. I try to write for the ages. It was something that I was told in like a seminar once when I was like thinking of going a more academic route. And so when I'm, I, I try to write for the ages, I try to write for something that will stand the test of time. And whether I'm successful at it is not, is, it's completely outside of my control. Uh, except in that I, you know, write the best I can or try to produce the best, you know, like do as best I can on like an interview like this, because this is another way of recording ideas. Um, so, but, but Ron DeSantis is that. And so but people are going to quibble over, people are going to quibble over things. I'm sorry. I thought we were Austrians. I thought we understood that there still has to be like a cardinality to things that you have a, you have a top preference and a preference below that and something below that. So we have to order 
ideas. We have to order our wants and desires. There is always going to be a hierarchy. But we seem to forget. But when we're emotionally invested in something, it's very easy to forget that. And I think that I think that has a lot to do with why people maybe don't see what we're seeing as again, you know, outsiders or people like somebody like I've written about this as it relates to skepticism, because people will say like, oh, well, you know, if everyone's a skeptic, things wouldn't go well. And it's like, yeah, you're probably right. But if no one was, things wouldn't go well either. So. <laughs> Precisely. Things would get stodgy. I, you know, I have like longer argument, more philosophical arguments about how that works. And, and this, this connects very well to your, um, to the watcher uh, metaphor that you use as well, which is like, yeah, there, like somebody has to be the, if you're putting a squad together, right. in whatever kind of squad it is, you got, you got, you know, you got like your, if it's a military squad, you know, you have your commander, you have like a guy with a heavy gun, you have a couple people with like standard, uh, you know, just standard issue rifles. You have somebody that maybe is carrying explosives and has specialties like that. If you're playing an RPG, it's the same kind of thing, right? Choose your class, knight, mage, uh, orc, elf, dwarf, right? It took, this was one that came to me recently. It's just the brilliance of somebody like J.R.R. Tolkien, but it's like, you know, the whole message of J.R.R. Tolkien is that all these all these completely different people had to get together to defeat evil and man if we're not facing some evil right now in society and 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 the people who are scared of that are people living in a moment in the past and people who aren't willing to look at the world as it is now my position is that ignorance is bliss my all i ask is that you is that you um admit the fact that you're choosing ignorance All right, gang, got to take one quick break to tell you about our amazing, wonderful friends and supporters over at Lorenzotti Italy. Lorenzotti Italy is the number one place for you to stop and order some fine, premium Italian coffees delivered right to your door in these neat little tins. And if that wasn't enough, you get to do so knowing you're helping a sponsor of this program. And if that weren't enough, you get to order using your Lions of Liberty discount code. That discount code is ROAR, and it gets you 10% off your order. So head on over to Lorenzotti.coffee and use discount code ROAR for 10% off some frying premium Italian coffees. Mm-mm-mm. Yummy, yummy, yummy. Why don't we talk a little bit more about just who we can name some names maybe or not, but more about who are the people we're not calling them post libertarians. You certainly don't refer to them in that article. Um, you refer to like the, the people that are emerging from the post libertarian moment as, as Praxians. I believe it was maybe Andrew that at first coined that. And, and he really, really doesn't like it when people say post libertarian instead of that. Uh, but, but like, so how do you get from this post libertarian moment to like some of these people and, and the actions they're actually taking? And, and cause I think that one, one confusion, there is a lot, a lot of people hear post libertarian, and they see it as a rejection of libertarianism. I, I actually think it's actually the opposite, really. I think it's people that are libertarian at their base, and we share that with the people that that might still be we might still be living in a sea, living in a different time, or what have you. But we have that in common. It's not that we're rejecting that other thing. Is that there's like you know there's this, and then there's more on top of it. Which in in, in many ways you might say everyone's post libertarian because everyone does something else with it, but maybe not everybody does. So, but uh, why don't you go from the moment and take us into the people and the actions and the actors? Yeah, so I say in the piece, like we're not discussing a movement, but we're a moment. The moment occurs when in the face of lockdowns, a libertarian sees dogmatic professions of faith and popular democratic political strategies as insufficient methods of stopping government and corporate tyranny. And that that's a that's an important distinction. 
So that's that's what the moment is, is when you're looking around and you're being like, okay, maybe running somebody for president in 2024 isn't going to really set the world free in our lifetime. In fact, I don't think it will. Um, it might make people feel good. It might bring a bring some sentimentality. And in fact, even the people who are pushing for a you know a libertarian presidential run are even saying it's not about seizing power. It's not actually about achieving uh, measurable ends. It is about having, you know, an information campaign. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy to take on that debate if need be. But I feel like it's I feel like you've done your due diligence on having those thoughts said um, in, in from from, you know, people with more of a profile than I do. So nobody can actually be a post libertarian. So most of the people, not all, but a lot of the people who are classified as post-libertarians would choose the name Praxian because it's about putting ideas into effect. I also heard Adam Patrick say recently, it's like a post-libertarian is a post-libertarian is is somebody. While wow, I getting the ism and the is there, right. is somebody who did call themselves a libertarian and doesn't really anymore. Mm-hmm. And gosh, if that's just if, if that isn't just cutting through all the very perfectly worded, you know, the the very perfectly worded sentence that I put together there. It's just, it's like when somebody says the word libertarian to me now, again, the ideas, the ethics and all that stuff, it's, and it, it didn't ring true to me five years ago. It doesn't ring true to me now. It was just kind of this placeholder. It was just this identifier I could use to try and broadcast my ideas to a broader set of people. I think that's the thing I'm realizing. And I think your article help, actually helped me kind of solidify that a little bit is that it's not necessarily, or it's not even at all a rejection of ethics. It, it maybe is on some levels, a rejection of certain strategies, but not, not at its core necessarily. It's a rejection of identity. It's, it's a rejection of libertarianism as identity um, and, and, and filtering yes. everything yes, through yes, it yes. as identity. So it's not a rejection of the ethics of the beliefs of any of that stuff. It's, but it is a rejection of tying everything that we do and, say to to making sure we're okay to be called that label by other people that that's basically correct that's how i would see it i think the libertarian approach certainly in the one that i came into was kind of like a compromise that nobody wanted it it, it was a compromise that nobody wanted right here we're going to take these right-wing elements and these left-wing elements and we don't we, we can define those but let's just pretend that we understand what those mean um, you know, we're going to take this left and right and we're going to push it together, right? Because we're neither left nor right. We're libertarian. You know, we are the third, we are the third leg on the stool. We, you know, we're not liberal, we're not liberal or conservative. We, we, we have our own philosophy or we combine the best of both depending on how crappy of a messenger somebody is. I think it was, I think it was a, it was a compromise that nobody was willing to take because it kind of makes a lot of sense. Right, kind of makes a lot of sense to just kind of let people do what they want to do. So why don't people do what they want to do? Well, I think somebody like Andrew has pushed the praxeological framework, as far as I can tell. I'll I'll reserve final judgment, you know, until he writes it all out and I go through it with a fine tooth comb, and I, you know, and the greatest minds can can go against him and see, you know, like that's the battle place of ideas. I'm here for an academic discussion, but an academic discussion isn't sufficient. And moreover, the more popular libertarianism becomes, the less you can rely on academic discussions. Why? Because the more popular something becomes, the more, the more it, it, it loses its essence. Because to, be, to have expertise, you have to know a lot about something. And, and certainly, there are a lot of people who call themselves libertarians online who don't know a lot. 
And that's not an insult. It's just an observation. I know people will take it insultingly, but like you might, like I don't pretend to have read all of Rothbard. I wouldn't. I don't even pretend to have read all of human action. I haven't. I've read enough of it. I've listened to enough lectures. I've tried to apply it and, and I'll go back where it needs to. For me, with my interest, like the epistemological framework Mises puts out was kind of like where I where I spent a lot of time studying and like the intricacies of economic theory, given that I'm not an economist, weren't as interesting to me. So I can rely on basic interpretations of things like, you know, um, demand curves or, you know, the supply and demand, so on and so forth. But I, I and I'm willing to admit my ignorance right in, in that frame. But there, what's, what happens a lot of times is people take a little bit. It's the Dunning-Kruger effect. Again, cognitive dissonance, Dunning-Kruger effect. These things are endemic to the human species. It's not unique to libertarianism. Sometimes we all think of ourselves as unique people because I think a lot of us as libertarians were social outsiders in effect, right? Like anything that's marginal is going to attract marginal people. And that's part of the identity thing too. It's like we, yes. and I say we, cause I do mean me like this was a big part of me for a long time. My drive to be so different and to be such an individual that I would almost do anything to prove that I wasn't just like all these normies out there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm the, uh, this, this has been uh, me in a form for as long as I can remember, you know, I am constant. It's like, yo, yo, LB. Stop getting so deep, man. I don't got time for this. Um, you know, like that was when I got the job I had now. It, it really was. It was one of those crystallizing things because of that of that thing of like, oh, it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter the ideas that I have. It matters what works in the real world because that's 10,000 pounds of steel above my head right now. And if yeah. that guy who put that crane up there it didn't do a good job of inspecting it, I'm dead. You mean you don't want to make sure he's a libertarian first? <laughs> Yeah, right. Exactly. No, he's probably a union dude who voted for, you know, who voted blue his entire life. But the man knows how to operate a crane. Um, so like, so, so this idea of praxis, this idea of putting things into effect is again, not unique. And, and it's not, um, and I don't mean to insult, I don't mean to insult like somebody like Andrew who came up with the term. There's uh, what's interesting is like kind of one of the responses has been like, well, yeah, of course everybody should go make money. It's like, okay, so why are all these people telling me I'm a bad Christian because I want to make money? Like, why are people, why are people going after Matt Erickson for, you know, or somebody like Jason Stapleton for saying, take control of your life? Wow, that's kind of interesting. We're capitalists, right? We're free market people. What has happened that people like react in this way because what? Because you're not saying things the way they're supposed to be said? Oh, that sounds like dogma to me. And I don't do dogma. I do good dogma, but like, you know, we can get into the spirit. We can get into a religious discussion, but like it's, it's, uh, it, this was, this is kind of apparent. And I kind of, I, I talk about that a little bit in why it happened. Right. Whereas like, I feel like there has been a dulling of the rhetoric and I think that's inevitable as something becomes more popular. So you have to like update, you have to update the framework to say, all right, we're not all academics, right? Like I, I wouldn't claim to be an academic. I would consider myself, you know, like a writer or something like that. But like, you know, let's let's remember that we're not all trained academics, and you know there are obviously trained academics in the space. That's not that's that's not what I'm trying to say. But you know, when there are libertarians who would defend government lockdowns, you know, mandates, uh, you know, who would defend rioting and the looting of businesses, people who would even call themselves socialist, what has happened to this word in that time frame? That's that's where I that's where I find myself, and that's one of the reasons why I wrote um, why I wrote what I wrote. And, and really quickly, before I throw back to you, I, I figure I should at least touch upon what it is not, because this really matters to me. Um, and, and I'm already seeing, you know, I'm already seeing people, um, you know, like there, there's somebody, uh, he's, I think he's affiliated with the Free State Project, who like called Pete, who 
likened Pete to Christopher Cantwell. Um, and it's like, no, you're wrong. Like you're just wrong. You're ignorant. Frankly, you're just you're yeah, just you're making you know, that comparison. Some, you're you're signaling to me that you either don't know what you're talking about or you're you're willfully just you know saying nonsense. Yeah, and I have no issues if you choose ignorance. I'm just going to make you say it. I'm just going <laughs> right. to make you say that you're an ignorant person if I can, because this is what it's not. This isn't a pipeline situation. This isn't what the alt right was. This isn't about race essentialism. I've. Race, racism is about social control in America. That's all it is. And any iteration that it's had, if you go back, that maps onto every single form of racism, whether it was the anti-black racism of the colonial era and the Jim, you know, into Jim Crow or the white or, or against like the racism against the Irish and the Italian as they came in or the, or the racism that we're experiencing today against, you know, cis heteronormative men, as the case may be, you know, and racism might be a, a little bit of a cry for that. But the point being, racism is about social control. At the end of it, it's about controlling the minds of people and saying that the other is scary. That it's, and in fact, I argue it's the oldest and most persistent method of social control. So, what the Praxian does is the Praxian doesn't fall victim to that. That's what the alt, the outright were patsies. They were stooges to the progressive regime. They were the enemy they wanted. No, that's not what I do. And, 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 and anybody, anybody out there who would dare liken me to that, Watch out when we're in person, because that is not so. That is not something I abide. It is not something I believe. I can understand, you know, like oh, what about in group preferences? Yeah, man, in group preferences really, really work. And a lot of times they do fall on ethno, ethno, uh, ethnic lines and racial lines. But then again, we have to get into the question of what is race and what is what are these phenotypic characteristics and stuff like that. Like I did it, man. I've done all those. I've done that research as best I'm able. You know, gone through all the horrible things that you're that you're not supposed to look at. And turns out you can still. Turns out somebody like Thomas Sowell takes care of it in about 30 seconds in his uh, most recent book. So go, so go check it out. It's, um, it's discriminations and disparities where he, you know, he talks like, did you know, for example, that um, most astronauts are the first born hmm. are, are, are eldest siblings. And did you know well, that, that as, it re- as it relates to, as it relates to intelligence that like it, there's a, there's a downward slope in, in like the order of siblings that there tends to be like, there tends to be decreasing levels of like in IQ as you measure it. Did, did you know that like hurricanes only or, or tornadoes only exist on like 3% of the earth's surface? Why? Why do we think then that everything is supposed to be equal? Well, there is an ideology out there that's, that, that promulgates the egalitarian delusion, as I, as I like to call it. And the libertarians who think a popularized, a popular liberty message suffer or, or rather think that liberty can be a popular message in the way that we talk about it um is is are, they're suffering from an egalitarian delusion they are it's it, we we've seen the data points right canada reelected trudeau with no problem uh california reelected newsom with very with as much fanfare around larry elder the black face of white supremacy <laughs> we we've seen we saw immediately Every single time, the way that the corporate press and the cathedral actually uh, operate and the way that they exert their social influence over people. And guess what? That social influence is a real force. It's, you can look at it as warfare if you want of the mind. I don't, I don't see, I don't, I've never really seen a problem with that. If you study ideas, you understand that the, uh, that the ideological <laughs> framework is a battlefield, right? Like it's always about these ideas kind of rising to power over time. I do want to wrap up kind of looking at, one other aspect of this and um, 
you kind of use a, a Jordan Peterson line in here just about uh, cleaning your own room when it comes to, um, you know, looking at politics and that sort of thing. And like, that's, that's one thing, not looking at politics, but like actively being uh, involved in politics or trying to be a leader in politics because, and I'll, I'll let you expand on this. You make this point you know, pretty well in your article, but at, at the end of the day, it's like no one wants to lead someone who either I know it's a cliche lives in their parents' basement or whatever, or, or has a dirty room or doesn't make their bed or like, you know, like, and, and it is, it's a metaphor, but it's, it's also not because if you really don't have a clean room and you really ha- don't have your shit together, then you really are not in a position to be a leader. And it doesn't mean you're a bad person or you're doing anything, you know, but, but it does mean you should work on that stuff first. And I think one, one thing I have noticed that I, I think is somewhat similar between a lot of the people in the Praxian circle and, and they're, they all have very different perspectives, but I do sense a common thread of, of a, um, an embracing of spirituality and, and whether that's, uh, some people are like orthodox or exploring that some people are, you know, I don't, I don't, there's a lot of different takes on it, but that, that concept is there for everybody. And to me, I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that the last, you know, two years of me have been, you know, huge in terms of my spiritual growth or my embracing of the mystical, so to speak. So I'm just kind of curious your own perspective on that. Um, you know, has, has your own spirituality changed at all, um, over these last, last few years here. And, and do you, do you see a necessary, do you see a necessary, a necessary element of spirituality when it comes to this stuff? Or, or could you just be like, I mean, obviously you could be, but do you think it's as just as fine to just be like, I don't know, a a normie atheist and, and be, you know, pushing along these lines as well. I don't, I I would think, I do know of people who call themselves atheists who would, who don't like disagree with a lot of the things I say and are interested in exploring spirituality. Um, so, so I would, I would say that. And for me, it's always easier to, you know, go with how somebody calls themselves, uh, you know, with few exceptions. So if somebody calls themselves an atheist, I'm not going to try and convince them they're not. I'm, but I have never claimed that label for myself. I was raised Catholic, um, still call myself Catholic. I'm not a practicing Catholic at the moment, just in all, in, in, in all humility and honesty. Um, but I've always been, but faith is at the center of my uh, of my worldview, really. Um, I wrote in the Zenith of Enlightenment, where this is my critique of the Enlightenment, um, where the Enlightenment thought if we just, you know, we can separate humanity into instinct and reason. If we separate them into these neat little categories and we only focus on reason, then everything's going to be great because instinct is kind of bad. It's not. It's a trinity. It's a trinity between, um, it's a trinity between instinct, reason, and faith. Mm. And like who we are exists inside of all of that. And if you put it in a Venn diagram and you put arrows all over the place, you can kind of like connect things like, oh, this is what religion is. This is what theology is. This is what the law is. Um, I've been wondering what's at the center of it for a while because it's not me. It's not I. We are that thing. So I'm still working out what, what the center of that might be. Um, but no, I think faith is, I think faith is critical. I think faith is essential. And I think any, I think only an atheist is, is foolish enough to disagree with that. Frankly, there, it's this idea that, oh, well, if I don't, I don't have faith in anything, man, I just trust science. Like, okay, well, that's what your faith is. Your faith is this drive. It's in, it's in, it's endemic to the species and it has to go somewhere. Yeah. Everyone has it. It's just a matter of where you're directing it. Precisely. And it's, and it's something that has to go somewhere. And usually it goes to some kind of authority. And I don't think it's an accident that a lot of people in this space, including myself, have been looking at re-examining um, religion, spirituality. I certainly feel more connected to the divine than I have in a long, long time. I've kind of spent the last 10 years as this, like, as this purposefully secular person. 
right? Like, uh, like I'm using as, as somebody who studies philosophy, I call myself, I call myself a sense maker because I'm trying to make sense of the world. As somebody who uses reason, right? Like I'm, I'm purposefully trying to use reason, but I understand that there is that, that faith is something else and that instinct is something else. And I feel myself returning to, uh, returning to faith. Um, and I think that has something to do with the fact that like, if you, if you take yourself out into the, like the ideological waters and it's like, that's chaos, right. To, to bring it to the basic order chaos dichotomy that we all, that like even our brains, if you read Ian McGilchrist who Jordan Peterson introduced me to, he even argues that our brains are set up like that. Like that is what the left and the right brain is. One is, one is oriented towards like understanding, um, and, and, and like ontology, right. The state of becoming. And then the other side is more deontological. It's like, here are the facts of, here's the facts as I've been able to categorize it. I don't think it's an accident that we see these kinds of things. I don't think it's an accident. It's it's one. I'm I'm in that I'm in that phase right now. I, I am. I don't deny it. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Um, I think I do think that your faith has to go somewhere. And if your faith and it can't be in your and it can't be in yourself and it can't be in the state and it can't be in the people and it, and it can't be in you know the so-called leaders. Right. That's that's how you that is how you end up with the cult of Trump. And I use that word not not in a disparaging sense, but a technical sense. And a lot of those people have lost their faith. And now what do you see? Well, you see that, there, you know, it was told to me like, oh, well, I don't watch Fox News or CNN or any of it. It's like, oh, so how are you getting information? <laughs> you're getting somewhere, right? man. <laughs> like, you're getting it from somewhere. It's probably from Facebook, right? But, but like your perception is that... It's probably from a Fox News article on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Or, or it's like, or it's some like random site. You know that, and that's how it's again. The 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 call of our age is not about access to information; it's about interpreting information. Yes. So I do think that spirituality connection is important. It's um, but it's a different mode, right? Like we've been we've been operating on reason. If we were to try and shift now into spirituality, it it, it would take me a little bit because I would have to like put myself in that frame of mind in order to in order to argue it effectively. But I have had like spiritual experiences recently, and I've been, I think, in part because I've been looking for them more. And I've been reflecting yeah. a lot upon that old verse in the Bible that says, seek and ye shall find, um, you know, knock and the door will be opened unto you. You even described a, a pretty recently, um, in, you know, we were kind of having a chat and you were talking about how you were like having like a boys weekend and just like, you know, mm-hmm. going hard, I think like drinking for like 12 hours or something and that you actually got into this like spiritual mode from it and kind of got me thinking and reflecting back like on how many moments I've had where I was. I mean, there's one thing just partying and having fun. I wouldn't classify that as, as the same as, as, as this kind of thing, but I, I've definitely experienced something like that where mm-hmm. you, it's, maybe it's like spending a lot of time with just the same people or you almost get to this point where you're just, you're operating on a different level and your, your spirits are just kind of all vibing together and like something more powerful happens and that can happen with alcohol or without anything either. I mean, it, but it's, it's more about like, I, I felt this kind of thing where you're on a journey of some kind with, with a group of people and that journey might just be day drinking all day but you kind of get mm-hmm. to this point where, well, I'll, I'll let you describe it more because you know, this is, this is your experience. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like, I was yeah, having, having some fun with, uh, with some friends of mine, you know, having, having a good, having a gay old time as the case may be. And, you know, we were in the city, we were in Nashville and we were kind of like, we, we went out to brunch and then brunch turned into dinner and then dinner turned into night. And then, you know, we were, it was like 16 straight hours and I was drinking and I had, and I, and I took some edibles as well. Um, and like on the third replay of all the same songs that was always there, I was starting to get upset. And instead, I just like opened myself up to it and like realized that most of a lot of like human ritual revolves around like a trance like state. And I kind of just again, like I was just it was just good vibes, man. 
<laughs> to be a little reductive with it. But it was, I, I reached this like spiritual point where I was like connected to the guys I was hanging out with and like, you know, the people on the dance floor and the energy. And I'm, I'm like I said, I have a performing arts background. So, uh, you know, acting, dancing, you can, you kind of connect to that too, right? There's something, there's something spiritual in all of those things. And one thing that I was struck by recently um, when I was hanging out with some people who were more more secular and you know and more atheist as the case may be, is how much work you have to do to like close yourself off from 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 the beyond, from the divine, um, as I might call it. It, it. It's a lot of work, actually. If you, if you look at it, because like no 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 no, I'm not. I don't I don't I don't do any of that anymore. Yeah, if you just kind of stop fighting it, you don't even have to actively try. You can just kind of stop fighting it and and become more open to it, and then you, you know things can start to happen. Yeah. And, and just for people who are listening, you'll note that I'm not, you know, making any sp- specific prescriptions for one religion versus another. It wasn't specifically Jesus that came to you while you were at the club at four in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I think he would have had some words um, <laughs> to be to be fair. But I don't think um, I've always called myself a person of deep faith. That is who I, that is always who I've been. And um, and and I think we I think we're just seeing with again kind of going back to some of the more secular stuff. See, like it's already hard for me to switch back into what yeah. we were going to before because <laughs> I'm on this. I've like kind of like changed my 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 lens, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, 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 yeah, that's what I would say to people: is don't don't close yourself off to it, right? I mean, to again, you know, the Bible does say, you know, if today you hear his voice, his voice, harden not your heart. And I, I'm 29, right? So I think some of this for me, it kind of it kind of follows like that natural life path where I'm like, I'm coming into my thirties now and I have just a different perspective and where maybe five or six years ago it would have been, uh, sorry, one, one quick, uh, one quick anecdote. Somebody told me at a bachelor party a long time ago, we were talking about this and I was talking about all this philosophical work I was going to do. And he said, you know, I've just kind of always put my faith in God and I've let him provide and it's worked out really well. And for some reason, you know, that maybe we can unpack it at a, at a later date. I was trying to do everything for myself. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to, you have to let other people into your life and whether that turns into a God or whether that turns into God rather, cause I wouldn't, you know, I'm not really going to go too far down that path. Or like I say, I like using the word, like the divine is kind of a placeholder. Um, yeah, I, I think I think if you if you're interested in it, I'd say explore it and just be care and but be careful when you explore it because there's a lot of people who are going to lead you astray, and um, and the word of God is very very powerful, which is why I, I tend to stay away from it because I don't uh, because I understand the just how much power is actually behind those things. But when I see people using it as for evil, that's that's where. Uh, well, again, to, let's end this with a quote from Doctor Who, shall we? <laughs> Demons run when a good man goes to war, and I think a lot of good men are getting ready to go for, go to war right now. That's a great and, quote. Um, That's, I've that never heard that. I've always been one of those of like I'm so I'm such a sci-fi nerd. I just have never been able to get into Doctor Who. I think there's there's like two kinds of people. You can get into Doctor Who, or you mm-hmm. can't, and I'm, I just couldn't. Yeah, it's a poem. I, it's you can you can go check it out. It's part of it's part of a larger story arc that's a lot of fun. But um, but yeah, it, demons run when a good man goes to war, and so let's fight demons. <laughs> I, I, I think that's a great way to great way to wrap things up. And uh, if we can't agree on fighting demons, what the hell are we all going to agree on here? So uh, LB, uh, mm-hmm. why don't you uh, let everybody out there know how they can find everything you got going on the been awake podcast, your sub stack, this specific article. I think you have a dedicated URL for, so feel free to plug away. Absolutely. So I am the mind behind the been awake project for better sense making. <clears throat> Normally I would tell you to go to been and subscribe to the email, but 
If you go to postlibertarianmoment.com, you can subscribe with your email there and get the Post Libertarian Moment defined for free. All I, you know, all I ask is that you give me your email address if you could so that we can stay in touch. It's a fair term. Um, <clears throat> I will be, well, yeah, exactly. And I will be, I will be releasing it in chunks on Been Awake and I'll, I'll definitely be covering it a lot more. Hopefully more people want to talk about this so I can have some back and forth with it. But that's me, man. You can follow me on all social media at the LB Muniz. All right. LB Muniz. Thank you so much for coming on today. Had a blast. Keep up the great work, brother. Keep on roaring. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Kitty cats, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with LB Muniz, hoping we could shed a little light on the post-libertarian situation. <laughs> Let's just call it that. And uh, I also want to mention a couple podcasts I was on recently. I've just been on a, a whirlwind tour, but I had an absolute blast on a number of shows last week. On Monday night, last Monday night, I was on the Tower Gang pod. Always a blast with those guys. Uh, Toad, of course, a longtime uh, Mufasa member of the Lions of Liberty Pride. At that level, he gets to join us. For Mufasa calls, $25 and up a month, you get to join the hosts uh, once per month for a little chat, a little talk, a little insider information about what we're doing with the podcast. It is a blast. You can find out more about our Patreon at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. You can also support us on Locals if you are Patreon-adverse over at lionsofliberty.locals.com where you could also have seen this interview live before the rest of the universe got to got to witness it. Uh, I was also on the Brian Nichols show with my friend Brian Nichols over on the We Are Libertarians Network. Uh, Additionally, I was on Timeline Earth with my buddies Burr and Aaron over there. We had an absolute blast of a time just talking all sorts of nonsense as these things tend to happen over on Timeline Earth. Also had a blast on the Porcupine with Adam Nutter where we talked about our libertarian origin stories and then got into all sorts of weird conspiracy stuff. Had to have a blast doing that. And lastly, but certainly not leastly, I had to go on my friend Eric Brakey's show, Free American Now. Uh, of course, Eric has been a guest on the show a number of times. He has been a participant in several debates. I even debated him uh, a few months back, and I just really always have a blast talking to Eric. So check out Free American Now. It's a pretty new podcast, and he's doing a bang-up job. Just a, a stellar, stellar conversationalist that, that Mr. Brakey is. Speaking of stellar conversationalists... There are far fewer better than Brian McWilliams, who will talk to anybody at the bar until three in the morning, trying to convince him of his ideals. And uh, that is always fun to see in person. Unfortunately, you're not going to see him in person at Sayulita. I'll tell you about that in a minute. But you can hear him every single Wednesday on Electric Liberty Land, while you can also hear John Odermatt wrapping things up on Thursdays with Finding Freedom. You get all of this stellar programming, all three shows for the price of one. That price is free, my friends. All you gotta do is hit that subscribe button so you don't miss a darn thing here on the Lions of Liberty Network. Do not forget, I will be in Sayulita, Mexico. I'm gonna spell that for you this time. Sayulita, Mexico. S-A-Y-U-L-I-T-A. You wanna head to sayulitasupersprider.eventsmart.com. This is an event being put on by our friend Johnny Perfita from the Peddling Fiction Podcast. I will be there doing live podcasts along with some uh, Liberty friends such as Liberty Lockdown's Clint Russell, Buck Johnson from Counterflow, Robbie the freaking Fire Bernstein will be doing a set that I will be opening up for, believe it or not. That is true. Uh, James Guzman, our friend from the Borderless Podcast, who I got to hang out with in San Miguel de Allende the other week. It's just going to be an absolutely wonderful uh, COVID restriction free time 
very, very simple to get to Mexico. Uh, you don't have to worry about real hardly anything coming back. You do have to test if you are flying back into the United States, but there is a workaround to that as well. So just reach out if you want to know more. Uh, also, don't forget my Substack. I do write some things now and again over at markclair.substack.com. That's all I got, friends. Until next time. Live long and live free.